For as long as I've known the NBA, it's been a stars league. But even among the stars, there's an exclusive club. Russell, Dr. J, Jordan, Kobe. They're all part of a select group that paved the way for the NBA superstar of today. And some even shared secrets with each other along the way. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Jackie McMullen, and this is the Icons Club. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, man, I'm so looking forward to this talk. I actually, I kind of started in sports as a kid. My dad played college football. I played every sport as a kid growing up. I grew up in a sports neighborhood. People in our neighborhood went pro. Like three people on my block we played pro sports. Ultimately, it was very competitive. Like sports is my whole identity growing up, even though I'm kind of in showbiz. And I love, love, love this book, you guys. There's so much in it that I think, even if you're not sports, you could take away from it. It's by the award-winning sports columnist of the Washington Post. To just too many accolades to even mention here, you know, but she's always entertaining and I'm looking forward to the Martina Christie thing. I haven't read that yet, but I'm really looking forward to reading that. But she has a book right now called The Right Call, which sports teach us about work and life. Sally Jenkins, welcome to Black on the Air. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, such an interesting, I love these kind of forays into mixing metaphors and figuring out systems and that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm very philosophical in my personal life, like dealing with what are the systems and structures that can help you maybe get clarity or, you know, help you find a way and that type of thing. Um, what was it that kind of led you to wanting to do this type of book? I think clarity is the word, uh, you know, you, you, you just use that word and it's great because there's so much vagueness around sports. Mm-hmm. You know, we use lots of abstract, you know, uh, you know, greatest of all time, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, only the strong survive. There's all these buzzwords. There's all these abstractions around sports. And I really wanted to drill down into the actual mechanisms that make mm-hmm. organizations work really, really well. Or what makes a great athlete as an organism work really, really well. Mm-hmm. Because it's been nagging at me for years that I'm watching something much more important than pure entertainment out there. You know, there's something really profound going on uh, on fields of play if you can get at it in a way that's not trite. Yeah. And there's so much uh, dissemination of sports uh, looking at the final results all the time. Right. How many rings does this person have? You know, this and that. Right. What's their shooting? You know, shooting percentages, batting averages, you know, uh, and now yeah. next next gen stats. Right. Um, so we've gotten real money oh. about the whole thing. Oh, Moneyball. It's crazy. Like the plus minus thing just blows my head up all the time. Well, they're plus minus. I'm like, what the hell is plus minus? What is that? What does that mean exactly? Like players can get this is in basketball for those of you that don't talk about, but they could get knocked for a negative plus minus and yet be winning games. You know, it's crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, look, all those numbers to me boil down to like one essential fact, which is that 
even the greatest athletes mm-hmm. miss more than they make. Whether you're talking about a batter or a great clutch shooter, uh, they just the athletes really miss more often than yeah. we realize. And the rest of us are so easily destroyed by like one little setback, you know? Yeah. And athletes like a LeBron James in the clutch, like the dude is like, what, not even 40%, you know, maybe around 40%. Like, you know, he, he's, and yet he keeps taking, the, the most important thing is his willingness to take the clutch shot. I think LeBron's yeah. taken more clutch shots than maybe any player in history. It's an essay in courage, really. Uh, you know, uh, and, and the rest of us are just so easily knocked back on our ass, uh, by, you know, uh, a, a disappointment or a failure. And these people, that's what really separates them to me. Yeah. What's great about the book too, it's not a particular, um, aspect of the individual or their nature. Really, there's a system of work that is behind this, you know, like I heard the expression once you don't rise to the level of the moment you fall to the level of your preparation you know? yeah. no that's exactly <laughs> it's right really what greatness is right yeah. yeah i mean and that's that's a really profound insight that i came away from by doing the book and frank reich uh, actually is the guy who said it to me he said look everybody thinks that great athletes rise to the moment and he said in yeah. fact so here's frank reich who accomplished the two greatest comebacks in football history right well, one in college at maryland and then another one in the NFL with the Buffalo Bills. And Frank will tell you that what happens in those instances is not that he rose to some extraordinary moment, but that under pressure, he was simply able to be himself and he didn't deteriorate under pressure. Yeah, that really is like pressure. I think your book starts off talking about pressure, right? Decisions under pressure, how important, how uh, devastating fatigue can be. Fatigue makes cowards of us all, I think was the phrase, right? It also makes um, hanging, it makes hanging judges, right? Yeah. Like one of the things in the book is that like judges closer to lunchtime or the end of the day, like deal out, you know, are much less generous, like granting parole. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Fatigue makes people, their judgments really change under fatigue. Yeah, it really does. I remember, uh, I was very, I grew up in uh, Pomona, California. So John Wooden was always a hero of mine, you know, his, uh, precepts and everything and the Showtime Lakers, of course. And Pat Riley, when he coached the Lakers, he had, they were so in shape to run shows. It wasn't just the flash and everything. They were just, they were in better shape than any other team was what I always took away from that. I was always, uh, you know, uh, struck by that, you know, that always hit me, especially as someone who played sports, like you can notice things like that. The team that's just better equipped from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you know, the greatest counterintuitive example of this is, is grandmaster chess players, uh, which, you know, if you look, you you wouldn't think of chess players as being exceptionally fit human beings, but they actually are the world-class chess players today. Magnus Carlsen trains at the Norwegian Olympic training center you know, even Bobby Fischer, who was sort of a pencil net geek by comparison to <laughs> he was an chess, eccentric, chess players yeah. today. Right. I mean, Bobby, Bobby Fischer said that the mind is reliant on the body. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the mind will rob your muscles of the energy to function. That's a, that's a core truth about judgment and decisional expertise or decisional excellence. And chess players know this. But the, the really interesting thing about wow. chess players, they can burn, grandmaster chess players will burn about 600 calories in a big match. Just That's crazy. That. I mean, they, they wear they wear Fitbits now, right? There's like this game yeah. game in in chess where they strap these guys up with you know uh, Fitbits, and they can see their blood pressure, they can see their heart rates. You know, a Magnus Carlsen under pressure, his heart rate may go up to like 130, right? I mean, chess players are essentially like you and me would have to jog on a treadmill for a couple hours to approximate what's happening to their bodies while they're engaged in really really deep thought under pressure. And, and so, you know, anyone who thinks that they're not working quite strenuously when they're sitting at a desk mm-hmm. is just wrong. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a critical component in your overall cognition. Yeah. And there's finding that balance between the physical and the mental, both are being important. That physical supports the mental and the mental relies so much on the physical because you want that physical to be to get you ready so the mental can just be free, right? And just right. just be relaxed. Um, I remember taking acting classes uh, early on when I, I was a theater major in school. And uh, the whole point of everything that we did ultimately was to relax. Like many of them were called relaxation exercises. And I always wondered about that. 
Why is that? So why is that so? It's because that's when your mind is at its most free, its most creative, when it reacts intuitively at the best. And that's when you really can get clarity is when you're in that relaxed stage. It's not, it's people think it's like sports is getting like, you know, yeah. that, that kind of thing there, uh, that clenched teeth type of thing. Right. No, it's absolutely right. I mean, um, Michael Phelps was fortunate to fall in the hands of a coach who understood that more than yeah. just anybody. That was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Bob Bowman had been a music major in, in college. Yeah. And so he, he very much coached Phelps as if he was teaching a great pianist to internalize mm -hmm. measures of music. So yeah. that when they were practicing strokes at certain distances and stuff, Phelps could just relax and let go and, and play the piano in the water. You know what I mean? That was fascinating. The Phelps thing was fascinating because it, he's kind of like the Tom Brady example when I'm, when you were talking about Brady, how they don't start off as seeming like they're going to be these prodigies, you know, that they're examples of who's going to be great. Like the guy looked at Phelps' body, I guess, and <laughs> saw like this kind of an anomaly. I guess he could see it, but I don't think Phelps saw it for himself at first, right? No, and, and it's it's funny. Scientific American. It's so fascinating. Yeah, like Scientific American magazine even did a piece looking at whether Phelps had some like weird anatomical gift. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. Yeah. His his arms are a slightly longer for a guy who's six foot four, but right. basically the rest of his torso, like everything about him, is is pretty normal for a guy who's six foot four. You know, mm -hmm. his physique was earned. It was built over years with medicine balls and yeah, you know, how many thousands upon thousands of ab ab workouts and wow. kickboard workouts and uh, you know. But the bottom line is, like, the talent is really a fractional part of this whole deal. Um, yeah. I, my favorite exercise every year at the Super Bowl is to scan the game day rosters for all the guys who are undrafted free agents that are that have made it to this game. Yeah. And I found one really great statistic. The year the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl with Brady, with Tom Brady, 27 players on their 53-man game day roster have been rated two stars or less in high school by talent evaluation services. Two stars Amazing. or less. Yeah. So it's not it's not the five star guys who really uh, rise up all the time. A lot of those people fall by the wayside because they rely on talent. They fall into the, right. the talent fallacy. Talent fallacy is a great way, you know. Uh, even in um, was it Edison who said uh, genius is two percent inspiration, ninety eight percent perspiration, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, and the work, and they say it over and over. But why do you think people ultimately don't believe it? I mean. It's been said time and time again how important the work is. And yet many times people just don't believe it. I mean, I think because beautiful athletes make it look so nonchalant. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's really deceptive. It's so deceptive. Steph Curry makes it look easy. You know, Pete Sampras made tennis look easy. And if you're not behind the scenes watching the sausage made and seeing Pete Sampras <laughs> you, you know, literally, literally puke in the Florida heat from running sprints with a parachute attached to his back and then going into an unair conditioned garage. I did this one time writing about Pete. He would mm -hmm. work out in an unair, he'd do weight workouts in an unair conditioned in garage Florida. in Florida in freaking August, right? Just sweating to the point of like, you know, uh, like I say, pukage. And, you know, when you, when you said, what's going on here? He said, look, they don't air condition the court at the U.S. Open, you know, so that's the kind of work these guys do. And, mm -hmm. and you know, Steph Curry, I asked him, you know, can I feel your hands, which is yeah. a very embarrassing question. But I asked that's it because awesome. anyway, I was so fascinated. He has the hands of a logger. I mean, his hands yeah. are so thick with calluses. Like you would think that the guy like uses a jackhammer for a living. I love that you thought they were going to be like a pianist. <laughs> I did. I thought they were going to be so soft and silky. And I was like, what? Silky. They were yeah. flaking and they were hard as rocks and flaking with calluses. Now yeah. you've been, you've been in this arena for a while. That seemed like a surprise to you. I like how much of this book was a revelation for you personally? Well, I mean, I knew I was on to something. I mean, I wrote the book in the first place because I felt like there was something pretty profound going on out there that, people weren't getting at it was mm -hmm. really nagging at me but the the individual discoveries were really really interesting i mean there were there were there were things i suspected uh you know i suspected uh, that that fraction talent was fractional and that the work was really much more 
important mm-hmm. than the talent. Uh, but but right. the, the individual discoveries around certain topics, like just what conditioning does to you neurologically and why mm-hmm. it's so important. The messaging system between the brain and the body back to the brain, you know, uh, the, the athletes really make the male system in their bodies super efficient. You know, when Rafa Nadal is out there or Carlos Alcaraz is out there uh, returning a serve, um, they look so talented. But the fact of the matter is that they are highly practiced at reading visual cues in the guy serving Mm -hmm. and uh, they're not guessing. Okay, they're the the, the male system in their body and their brain is so efficient and so quick that it just looks like they're anticipating, but they're not. That's so fascinating. Um, Let me just uh, say what these different topics are so people kind of know what we're covering here. I'll go by your chapters here. Uh, You talk about decisions under pressure, the right call, but conditioning the body, practice the mind, discipline the framework, candor the language. That was a really interesting chapter. Uh, I think that's not talked about that much, which I find interesting. Uh, Culture, the environment, another good one. Failure, the teacher, and intention, the motive. Very interesting topics, you know, that really give you different takes on all of this. And do you think um, for your person that isn't in sports, how can they connect to some of these things? Because some of them are seem so sports connected, you know, because there's a goal in mind that's tangible. You either win or you lose, you know, and these things kind of add up to that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like, what is your way of connecting to that person who sees these and is very inspired by all this, but they go, I, I work at it, blah, blah, blah. How can I do this? So, well, you know, we all have to make decisions. And I mean, that's the most common uh, problem in the world is, you know, I, I have to make a decision. How am I going to make the decision? What sort of decision should I make here? Do I, you know, do I send my kid to a private school or a public school? Which doctor should I pick? Which stock should I pick? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, should I take that job and move or not? Should I sell the house? Should I buy the con? You know, like whatever it is, like these are all difficult decisions, right? And most of us don't engage in a very good process for decision making. A lot of times we drift or we let things mm-hmm. decide us. We default, uh, you know, we, and we don't even categorize our decisions very well. One of the things mm-hmm. that I discovered in writing this book is that you know, coaches and athletes and leaders of, of complex organizations, they categorize and define decisions very, very carefully, just in, yeah. in the same way that like Andy Reid is evaluating the difference between a first down decision and a fourth down decision. Mm-hmm. And like, we don't, you and me probably a lot of times don't stop and ask ourselves, is this a first down decision or is this a mm-hmm. fourth down? What are the consequences here? How reversible are they? So those are the sorts of things that I wanted to get into. And you you start with clarity by saying, is there even a need to make a decision here? Right. One thing Tommy Amaker, the great basketball coach at Harvard, said is a lot of people make the mistake of trying to decide too many things in a day. <laughs> right. Right. You know, right. like Tom, Tommy starts with going, do I even need to be making this decision? Do I really need to be worrying about what the team is wearing on the airplane? You know, yeah. and, and the answer is no. Right. The answer is that that's a drain on his decision making Amaker would tell you, we've only got so much in us to make good decisions every day, or we turn Mm -hmm. into those hanging judges who won't grant people parole, you know, when they're hungry for their lunch. (laughs) Right. Right. That's very funny. What about, uh, where does motivation come in and all this? I have different views of motivation. I always feel like great people, they really don't need motivation. Motivation is for people, is for someone that actually doesn't want to do something. I agree. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Yeah, like for people who really want to do it, good luck stopping them. Like good luck getting a golf club out of Tiger Woods' hand. You yeah. know, you don't have to. You don't have to motivate him to go to the golf course. You know, mm-hmm. um, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I try yeah. to tell young young writers all the time, write your passion. Like find the thing that you would follow and want to write about, whether you're getting paid for it or not. Right. right? Um. And and it, it's it's just such a difference maker and. You know, that's where the talent fallacy comes in. Like everyone goes, well, I, you know, could I be a guy? I couldn't be a great swimmer like Michael Phelps. Well, uh-huh. no, but if, but you could be a Michael Phelps at the thing you really love. Right. If you can find it and if you can take the risk to go all in with it, you know, that's, that's the key is 
find find what you love and find a way to make a living at it if you can yeah. uh, or, or practice it in some way, you know? Yeah. I always tell people when I talk to young people too, I say, you don't, you can't always do for a living what your passion is, you know, because sometimes you may not be able to make a living at it. Maybe that's your hobby and it's your right. escape and do for a living something that you're good at because you can get better at something that you're good at and you can yeah. be working at it. You could probably make a good living. And guess what you get to do after you finish with that? You get to go to the thing that you love, yeah. you know, yeah. and you get a break from it. Exactly. And here's the <laughs> other thing, right? Okay. No matter how much you love something, working at it is just not enjoyable. Okay. No. Like I freaking hate writing. Yeah, I just so do. do. I. It's painful. It's hard. I, it's the worst. No, it's, it's a, it's a horrible life. Don't Absolutely. go into writing. Yeah, I agree. I tell people I hated homework in school and then I choose a profession where I have it every day of yeah, my life. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to start there and go, okay, three quarters of the time, I'm not going to like, this is going to be painful to do and difficult. Yeah. Uh, what, what athletes, the, the, the insight that athletes have is they really think a lot more about how they're going to feel when it's over. Mm. How satisfying is right. it going to be to be yes. the, the, the person who, who completed the workout, who completed the event, who put themselves on the line? And, and more and more as I get older, you know, that's how I approach writing. You know, I'm, I'm the person who can do it and will do it, try to do it as well as I possibly can. And most people don't even finish something they start writing, right? I yeah. mean, finishing is one of the hardest things to do in writing. Absolutely. So it's kind of a mindset. These, these people can teach you a really pretty, pretty interesting flip in your mindset. Uh, you know, we spend so much time seeking comfort and seeking something that's fun. You know, yeah. as opposed to understanding how gratifying it can be to chase discomfort and go through it and come out the other side of it. And Absolutely. That's, that's, that's where athletes really have a lot to teach us. You know, I, there's such good life lessons. I always lament the fact that it feels like uh, like physical fitness and things like that have been devalued in our schools, you know, especially with young people because of the emphasis on STEM, which is nothing wrong with STEM. But I, I thought it should never be at the expense of the physical fitness thing. Cause I think there are much better lessons for kids to learn by losing a game than it is by getting an, an F you know, or getting that a getting an a or losing that game and coming back and working hard to, you know, to do better yeah. the next time, which, which one's going to serve you better. Hmm. Look, I'm not, a, I'm not a parent, but I have a lot of God kids and, and nieces. And, um, and I, I, I do feel we're losing some resilience mm-hmm. in people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's actually really a kind of a scary thing, uh, because as I say, you know, the people who really excel are the people who actually survive setbacks. I mean, it's yeah. those those kids who are rated two stars or less who made it into the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know, I I I, I kind of worry about people coming up behind them and whether they're going to have the same resilience. Right. That's mm-hmm. the question is uh, when you don't have when you have no tolerance for failure and setback you don't improve anything, right? You have to stress things to improve them and, uh, and to accomplish things. And so, and so if everybody's just running around seeking comfort and safety and, uh, and, and unbroken success, it's just not, it's not going to lead to very good outcomes. That, that's, that's just, that's just practicality. Yeah. I was really struck by the Diane Nyad story. I'd forgotten about that. And I don't know if we all knew uh, kind of what she went through. It was harrowing to read this, you know. I know. Well, not uh, only that, she, but like she tried five times to swim yes. from Cuba to Florida. Five Crazy. times. So right? what is, what, you talk about, you know, intention and the motive, but there's something different for that type of person. She was yeah. almost killed in the water by jellyfish. And yet she did this thing again. Where does drive come from? Well, I think a certain amount of drive comes from, particularly in endurance athletes, and it took me a long time to learn this. Mm-hmm. Endurance athletes are slightly different animals, right? They're they're marathoners, okay. not sprinters. And endurance athletes really love disappearing into the the, the pain of the experience because the wow, um, just the, the you have to be so in the moment, right? Yeah. You have to. Diana and I had managed to swim from Cuba to Florida by swimming like five more strokes at a time. Wow. She had this exercise she would do during training where when she finished a training swim, she would tell herself, just swim five more minutes. What like she had completed the workout and then she'd go mm-hmm. five more, just, just five more minutes. 
Well, those five more minutes is stack up in an increase. It's like compounding interest psychologically. Yeah. So great endurance athletes stay very much in the moment and they understand the value of like stacking one moment on top of another. And they derive enormous satisfaction from being these, you know, learning to be these extraordinary creatures who can take it and who can get through it. And wow. there's an amnesia in it, right? You know, that you yeah. can't worry about anything else. It's a Absolutely blissful, not. It's, it's really a blissful state in some ways. It may be painful, but you're not thinking about anything else. You have no other responsibility. None, right? The rest of us are so weighed down by responsibility. Endurance athletes have one and only one responsibility, which is to get into the next minute. It's a nice place to be in some ways. It, it's fascinating to me. I did some long distance running when I was really young. Uh, not the marathon type of thing, you know. Um, but there is a Zen state that you kind of go into the, the longer that you run, you know, which mm -hmm. I think... They call it the runner's high. You know, they're always chasing that type of thing. But this is different. You know, that the, what you're talking about is different. It goes even beyond that to like this painful place and then go, goes beyond that to a whole different, not even a high. It's just like a peace, maybe, I guess is the way. It's almost a spiritual journey. It's very much a spiritual journey. Yeah. If, you, if you talk to Diana Nyad about it, it's deeply, it's a deeply spiritual journey. And uh, uh, she talks about swimming towards a horizon and yeah. the extraordinary uh, feeling that you get from, from going, as she puts it, she said it really beautifully. She said, going a really long way under your own power, right? Mm. Traveling a really, really far, far distance under your own power. You know, we're so used wow. to riding in cars and boats and stuff. And, and so that was part of the charge for her was just the journey, making this incredible, you know, it's kind of like a Tibetan trek, right? And it's that whole notion that the great athletes have of betting on themselves. That's a common theme too. Yes. You know, uh, once again, the, the Brady example and some of those others, even Steph was undersized when he started, you know, even though his dad was a pro player, nobody thought Steph was going to do anything. No. I mean, he looked like your daughter. He looked like a, you know, <laughs> right. He was skinnier than your daughter, you know, he, he, and not much taller. Right? And his ankles popped a couple of times the first right. couple of years too. So he right. seemed fragile too. You know, He did, didn't he? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, they, the one thing they really teach you is to go all in. You know, they push mm -hmm. their chips all the way to the middle of the table, you they know, do. and they, they're like, they're like, here, I'm, I'm betting the pot on myself. And it's wonderful to watch. You know, I was, res I respect it more and more as I get older. Yeah, me too. The, the Steph thing too is fascinating to me because he is in a different category than so many different players. I'm trying to think if there's another player I can think like him. And the reason why I'm talking about it is because of your chapter on practice, you know, um, I, I'm an amateur magician. So my audience knows that. Um, and I actually got to meet Ricky Jay, who you talk about wow, um, I'm very jealous. briefly in the book. Ricky was amazing. He's I mean, a genius. He was a genius, but his he talks about he's absolutely right. It's in the work itself. It's how many times you do something in the dark when no one's looking to make it look like magic, you know. And what Steph is the only player, I think the only player I can think of before that was probably Julius Irving. And maybe Michael Jordan, they made it look like a magic trick, what they were doing sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. But Julius was more like, it was physical, this thing. But Steph, it looks like a magic trick when he's making these shots. But we don't see those thousands of shots that he's shooting, you know. Yeah. And how important, how important good practice is and not just spending time out there, but really good targeted practice, right? Yeah. And that's the big difference, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of bad practice in the world. Bad practice. People, right. Yeah. Led by bad coaches or not bad coaches, but coaches who just don't sort of get the full picture. I mean, John, I think John Wooden said it better than anybody that, you know, you have to practice with a purpose, you know, yeah. meaningless. Don't just do engage in a lot of meaningless activity. And you get that sometimes from people like, you know, we're going to work really, really hard at this, but it's kind of purpose, purposeless work. Yeah. The, the great teams and the great athletes uh, practice with like highly analytical sense of like why they're working on a particular thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Steph Curry will work on his non-dominant foot, you know, uh, you know, he'll work on, he's done, I don't know if you've seen some film of him working with strobe lights, working on his hand, no. hand speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, so there's a, there's a wall of lights and a, a light, a light will light up and he's, he's like, He's popping his hands, uh, following the patterns of the lights or the, 
the random patterns of the lights to work on his hand reaction, his hand speed, stuff like that, really refined. Practice is different from conditioning. Conditioning is like Mm -hmm. hardcore work to set up a baseline of fitness. Practice, deliberate targeted practice is uh, drilling specific things under the eye of a great teacher or coach in order to, you know, after diagnosing a weakness in order to cure it, right? And the rest of us, I've said this a million times, the rest of us keep running around our lousy backhand. You know, (laughs) we get get pretty good at something, you know, we take up golf, we get okay, but we don't, you know, we don't spend a whole lot of time really learning how to hit good bunker shots, right? You know, we, uh, we toss our ball out of the bunker, basically, you know, athletes, athletes, yeah, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Um, Athletes don't do that. Athletes keep looking for like minuscule, incremental, marginal weaknesses. And uh, so much of it, as you said, is boring too. I think that's what also turns a lot of people off is the mendacity of it all. It's just like, I got to keep doing this thing, you know? Right. Right. I mean, you know, Peyton Manning was, was not a great quarterback his first three years in the league. He was promising, but he wasn't, he wasn't great. Right. He was, uh, his record, his third year in the league was 32 and 32 as a starter. Yeah. And it's amazing. He, yeah. And he had led the league in interceptions for, I think, two of those years. Um, you know, he had some real, real issues. And one of them was, uh, footwork. His mm-hmm. footwork would get very uneven under pressure. And, um, Tony Dungy and Jim Caldwell sat with him and they watched film of every interception he threw. I mean, every single one. Very uncomfortable process, right? looking at tape of your worst plays and Peyton Peyton told me then they looked at what he called kind of a more hidden tape, which was tape of all the balls that he threw that should have been intercepted, but he just got a little lucky. Like, you know, the defender fell down or, uh, or dropped the ball and they designed drills to cure what they saw was like some flaws in his footwork. And they would hurl heavy sandbags at his feet on the practice field, uh, trying to get his feet more set and, 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 you know, uh, more stable under him when he was throwing the ball. So Jim Caldwell would be out there like hurling sandbags at, you know, at Peyton below the knees. You know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of deliberate targeted practice that, that t- takes a guy from being a promising, but 500 quarterback into a hall of famer. Yeah. And you know, some of those people, they're fortunate to have, you know, those good coaches or good leaders and that sort of thing. When the other, I guess, aspect of this book too is, I mean, it's one thing for an athlete to do these things, but if you're a coach or if you're a leader, like it's not always easy to lead these type of people, you know, no kidding. <laughs> like yeah. that can be a problem, you know, yeah. you like, how do you keep them focused? How do you keep them disciplined, you know, motivated? Um, sometimes uh, success can lead to bad things just as much as failure can. Oh, coaches, coaches hate going undefeated. The coaches yeah. I know hate going undefeated. Yeah. Pat yeah. Summit literally said the following words to me. We were on the phone at the beginning of a season and I said, well, how's it looking, Pat? You know, how's the team looking? And she said, well, I'll tell you. She said, if we lose one game, we've got a really good chance. But she said, if we lose two games, I guarantee you we'll win the championship. Wow. Interesting. Her exact words. Because yeah. she knew that a couple of losses would open the team up to uh, being more receptive to looking at their weaknesses and curing their weaknesses and yeah. that she, they would play into her hands. They'd have to listen to her a little more closely. And also it would take a little bit of the pressure off, you know? Yeah. Hubris is a killer. Like it yeah. comes in there fast. Mm-hmm. That uh, a great uh, Warriors team had no chance, no chance of winning that championship. I know. Really I games. know. They had so much of that weight on their shoulders that they had no idea yeah. No idea that, that that fate was just waiting to open that door and go, sorry. Right. No, I agree. But yeah, leadership is tough too. Some of these things about leadership, I think are good in real life, especially in relationships, you know, and one that stuck out to me, um, you know, because a lot of things I think people can deal with just in their ordinary lives and dealing with people, dealing with loved ones, things like that, not necessarily things that are going to make you great or that type of thing. As an example, when you talk about uh, blame versus critique, mm-hmm. you know. Very important in relationships, very important in being a parent or leadership or that type of thing. Talk about those distinctions. And I think it was Steve Young who kind of uh, had an epiphany about that. Yeah, I I learned that from Pat Summit. I learned that from sitting in the back of a lot of Tennessee uh, locker rooms, listening to Pat. And it, it, it occurred to me one day that 
you know, Pat could be very tough on teams and players, but I never heard Pat present a problem that she didn't in the very next breath present the solution, Mm -hmm. right? She'd show them film of them doing it wrong. And then she would show them film of them doing it right. And, and, and she would say, this is what we want. And by the way, Tony Dungy did the same thing with Peyton Manning when he was trying to convince Peyton Manning to just use a little more discretion and judgment throwing the ball. And, you know, he, he really had to persuade Peyton to, to quit taking so many deep shots and to settle for the underneath a little bit more, you know? Uh, and so coaches, coaches have a way of connecting the dots for their people in ways that they rationally understand when you do this, we're all going to be successful. And when you do that and you avoid the blame for it, or you try to mitigate, which is what Steve Young talks about so eloquently in the Mm -hmm. book, uh, when you try to mitigate your own role or blame in a situation, nobody around you trusts it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, uh, and that's where candor really comes in. Whereas uh, when people are really, really candid, but they can present the solution in the very next breath. Yeah, we messed up. Yeah, I messed up. But you know what? Here's how we're going to do it right. And we're going to fix it. And when Steve Young started taking that tone on the field, instead of, oh, my line, you know, my, my offensive lineman missed an assignment or the receiver ran the wrong route, you know, Young would say, Young said the difference was you go, you know what? I threw the interception, my fault, my bad. But you know what, guys, let's get a drink of water. Let's go back on the field and let's do it right next time and win this game. You know, um, that's the difference between blame and critique. And you can really, Pat told me, you can hear there's a language teams start to speak to each other when they're getting ready to win something really big. Hmm. Is what Pat is what Pat said, and you yeah. can hear it. You know, you can, coaches can hear it, and they understand how to talk to their people so that everybody's in the solution instead of the blame. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. You talk also about uh, culture and how important culture is to a place. And that's that, to me, feels a little more uh, sometimes elusive as an individual. You know, I mean, it really is a group. What of, is culture? Yeah. It, <laughs> what is I mean, it? There's, yeah. There's so many different versions of it and some that work, some that's a culture that seems to work in one place may not work in another place. You know, uh, some of it is style, you know, and some of it has to do with individuals like fra- eagles are so fragile, especially in sports and that type of thing. Uh, what is the biggest thing about culture that you took away from uh, in writing that? The, the biggest lesson I learned about culture comes from a guy named Boris Groisberg up at Harvard who studies it uh, organizationally. And basically, uh, his insight is that culture, culture has to be in alignment, right? Everything in your organization or in your, your, your personal life or whatever has to be aligned towards whatever that principle is that you say you're going for, right? So mm-hmm. if you say, you know, I want a creative culture in your office. I want people to be creative in my culture, but then you're not rewarding the creative people. You're awarding sinecures to people with the same old ideas, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. with the same old stale ideas. You don't, you're not in alignment, right? Um, If your salary structure is rewarding, uh, is not rewarding the more creative younger people, uh, it's not in alignment. And so what Kreuzberg says is you have to make sure that your values, your people that you're hiring, and then the environment around them all is, you know, in alignment and has the same vibe and the same environment. And the guy who understands this in sports better than anybody is Steve Kerr. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve, Steve Kerr has built a real culture in, in Golden State that's yeah. built around uh, basketball as play. You know, yeah. the reason his outfit is so loose is because everything in that building from what's on the walls to how they warm up to how they practice is all about play, playfulness. He wants his guys Mm-hmm. feeling joy with the basketball and it's palpable. You can feel it. And at the same time, he has to foster accountability. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah. children can play without accountability and it could be just a mess. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to see how he manages that, because one of the toughest things, especially in sports, and I'm sure people who are in business maybe face this in different ways, is I'm trying to make sure I get the phrase right. But it's it's when, you know, the room's not listening to you anymore. <laughs> you know, the, the locker room's not listening to you anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like uh What's the toughest part of that communication gap that can happen in, especially in leadership and dealing with, you know, these factors that we're talking about? You know, I I think, I think discipline is probably the most misunderstood, difficult concept. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think like, so it's fascinating. So the ringer had this great podcast, Flying Coach and on Flying Coach, there's a great conversation between Steve Kerr and Doc Rivers talking about what to do about cell phones in the locker room, right? You know, how to get their guys, especially their younger guys, to like put the phone down for a minute, man, and pay attention. That's crazy. Right? It's crazy. But they all struggle with it. Every coach in the league is like going like, how do I keep my guys off their cell phones, looking at their own stats at halftime and looking at texts from their wives and their agents telling them what they should be doing out there instead of listening to me. During the game. yeah, that's I was actually thing. shocked at this. Is yeah. basketball the only sport where this happens? Like football, they're not. <laughs> I mean, I, you phones. know, I think. Look, I think. I think all kinds of young people, you know, in, uh-huh. in in all sports, are probably suffering from this to a certain extent. And and Kerr and Rivers have this hilarious conversation about like, are you going to be the guy who tries to say, "Hey, man, no cell phones," you know, in the locker room? And mm-hmm. you know, how are you going to tell, you know, Draymond Green, or how how are you going to tell, uh, you know, these guys? put your phone down. It's not going to work. Okay. You, it, they have to vo- voluntarily do it. You have to find a way to coax them into doing it because it, let's face it. Like the only full grown people who take kindly to orders live in a barracks. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Even as a showrunner, I've had to do this type of thing. I worked with Eddie Murphy years ago, this uh, animated project we did. Eddie is brilliant, you know, and he's not only brilliant, but he's smart as a whip too. And, but he's also a star, you know, and I would have to figure out ways. I call it quote unquote to trick him is what I call it. (laughs) Make him think it's his idea, right? Well, because he's smart, you know, and and if they're don't want to do something, there's not much you can do about it. You just, most of the time you just say, okay, you know, but there was some, and he did, he didn't like to do a lot of takes on things. And honestly, he didn't have to, he's usually the first one was brilliant anyway, you know, but there's sometimes when I need it, something more. And I knew I couldn't just say, all right, let's do another one. I said, no, that's good. Let's go. And there was, if I said it like that, I couldn't go back and try to get it. I was done. So I had to figure out if I, and I couldn't do this all the time, by the way, how do I get him to do another one? Like, how do I get him to do it? So when I really needed one, I would just pause. I wouldn't say anything. And I would go, Hmm, what did you think of that? And he goes, I think I can do better. I'd say, good, let's do another one. <laughs> you know, yeah, but yeah. But that came out of respect for, you know, what his ego needed too. you know, because and that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying this in a critical way. You know, he he I think he appreciated the fact that that was a, a critique he could actually hear mm-hmm. and he could translate into doing something in. But if I just said, uh, no, Eddie, that's not going to work. You know, we need to do it like this or that never would have worked. Not yeah. going to happen like that, you know. I mean, look, Steve Kerr, like everything he says, you feel such respect coming from his mouth about his players, right? Yeah. And I think that's a real key to his relationships with his guys and why they play the way they do for him is because, uh, you know, he, he, he admires his own players and he makes that yeah, point to them. You know, he yeah. really does. Like, you know, he may have like a big headache with Draymond Green, he but I mean, he has, he has a, deep respect yeah. for Draymond Green and Draymond yeah. Green is actually the in-house disciplinarian really you know it's another thing about culture how important personnel is to that yeah you have you to know. have the right yeah Pat Summit always said people self-select at Tennessee right a lot of people think they want to come to Tennessee a lot of people thought they wanted to play for Pat Summit thought they wanted to wear the orange and she really tried hard to sort out the people who really really wanted the accomplishment and not just the jersey you know what i mean um and so she really tried to pick the self-selectors because like you say motivation is is not really what a coach wants to be doing no they want to be blending they want to be blending they want to be designing attacks and 
maximizing people's abilities, you know, finding a kid who's got a 12 story building, but they're only at floor 10 and there's two more stories to go. If they, if you can just turn kids, turn the kid on, you know, that kind of thing, but they don't want to motivate. It's that's tedious. Yeah. And it's always good if the coach has at least one accomplice. And if that accomplice is high enough on the food chain too, like Pat, (laughs) Pat Riley always had magic, you know, like the Lakers would not have been great with Kareem leading that team. They just weren't. It was magic spirit leading that team. And he, you know, Riley was the accomplice of getting them to work hard and do all those things. But magic had that spirit of fun. And Mm -hmm. the phrase, even that show called winning time, that was magic's phrase that he used to say in the fourth quarter. All right, boys, it's winning time, you know, and knowing what that means, the winning time was a fun time too, Mm -hmm. you know, when it's time to win the game. And that yeah. type of thing. So having that accomplice, I think, is really I important. Think so. yeah. yeah. And the and the blend, you know, I think coaches, I think the beauty of the job for great coaches is blending personalities. I think that's where yeah. they get the real joy. You know, putting all the right uh personalities in place and 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 developing uh rapport, you know, uh and chemistry is is the real joy in coaching for a lot of these people. Yeah. Um you know, you talk a little bit about failure too. What is the biggest problem with failure for an athlete? Well, it can become, as Billie Jean King told me once, it can become a bad habit, right? Mm-hmm. It's a fine line. I mean, this question of, do you learn, learn more from winning or losing? I, I think you unquestionably learn more from losing, but if you lose too much, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can you learn how in- to lose. If you learn how to lose, you kind of mm. think you're a born, you start thinking you're a born loser, that you're snake mm-hmm. bit, that, uh, that you lack some essential quality, all of which is mm-hmm. false. Um, you know, but, but that's the problem with failure. It's other than that, it's the single most useful experience in the world. And, uh, you know, one of the guys that I talked to for the, in the book that's so interesting on it is Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer, who's yeah. also a great engineer. You know, Laird has built, all kinds of devices for, for riding really big waves in the water, you know, foil boarding and, you know, t- adapting things from sailing and parasailing and uh, incorporating different technologies. And he's broken a lot of stuff. You know, he's invented mm-hmm. things that break and then he builds another one and it breaks and then he builds another one and it breaks too. And finally he, he, he refines it until it works. And engineers really understand the value of failure and the value of, of stress. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that's how you get, you arrive at the thing that works, you know? And that's why coaches don't mind losing a game here or there. They really don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many times I have seen teams, you can, you, you, after enough years, you start to see when the Kansas City Chiefs lost to the New England Patriots in the AFC championship game in that beautiful game, that back and forth between Mahomes and Brady, mm-hmm. the Patriots win it in overtime and go to the Super Bowl because of a four inch offside penalty by the chiefs that calls back a Brady interception in the final mm. two minutes of regulation. Mm. I was almost certain the chiefs would be in the Super Bowl the following year and they were, and they won it. You can really see you, when you see an organization come that close and get its heart broken and then deal with the failure in the right, healthy way, you know, there's a champion coming down the road. Yeah. It's funny because baseball and golf, just to talk about sports in general, they seem like the hardest sports to deal with failure because, first of all, baseball, you're considered success when you fail 70% of the time. Yeah, you know? and, and golf, too. I mean, And golf. I right. mean, the level of failure yeah. at golf is crazy. You know, like yeah. Tiger has given everyone the wrong impression of what is a successful golf career. If you win five tournaments and a major, like... That's a successful career. And let's say you've played 20 years. That ain't bad, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you win two two U.S. Opens or a U.S. Open and a British Open, you're a Hall of Famer. Andy North, you know, yeah. won two U.S. Opens. You know, I think they didn't hardly want anything else. Yeah. yeah. Very strange, yeah. It's it's so interesting how players uh, really stay um, mentally sharp in those types of things. Like, um, we're seeing more and more these days where players are being open about uh, being depressed, you know, fighting those type of things, mental fatigue. You had Naomi, Naomi Osaka, Osaka, is that her name? Yeah. Um, who was going through the thing. Why do you think more of that is occurring now? In your book, you talk about Dak Prescott sharing some of that. But I think more and more athletes 
are not only public about it, but they seem to be dealing with it unless they just weren't public about it before. Yeah. I mean, you know, not everybody's dealing with it. Great, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think that uh, sports psychology has, uh, you know, has gotten better. And I think that uh, athletes have learned the hard way that, you know, unprocessed depression and anxiety is actually a recipe, a potential career ender uh, mm. and, and recipe for a real spin out, you know, Michael mm-hmm. Phelps, was lucky, you know, that he had some pretty good people around him when he was going through depression in mid career. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Dak is like, I, you know, I, it's hard, I'm hard pressed to name a guy who's dealt sort of more forthrightly and healthily with his issues mm-hmm. than Prescott, you know, to, to make that public admission and then come out and have such a great season, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to post the numbers that he's posted the last couple of years. It's great to watch. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there's people much better than me to talk about this. Brene Brown is always great on this subject. Vulnerability is the sign of real courage, right? The mm. ability to be vulnerable, to confess to vulnerability, that's actually, it's counterintuitive, but that's real strength. Brene Brown asks uh, people in the military, have you ever known someone who did something really heroic who didn't acknowledge how scared they were, mm. you know, or how exposed they felt? And the answer is, of course not. You know, everyone in those in those really high stakes situations has felt fear and uncertainty. Vulnerability is actually the hallmark of a, of a healthy personality under pressure. The person who can confess to that vulnerability and then mm-hmm. take the, the right steps, deal with it in an organized way to mitigate it, to understand the pressures, take steps to mitigate them, you know, take steps to... Uh, be be a, a healthy person under pressure. Do you think it's a good kind of movement maybe for a lot of these public admissions? Maybe it's helping some players deal with these issues so they can be more vulnerable to getting to the other side of these things? Yeah, I do. I have a little, mm. I'm, I'm going to sound, um, you know, uh, I, I'm going to risk sounding like a, a mean old lady when I say I don't have so much uh, tolerance or sympathy for discussions of safe spaces. I think being offended is the natural consequence of walking outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, you're talking um, to a comedian here, so <laughs> right. <laughs> so I mean, I you know I like I don't want to go down that road because I like I think that there's 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 a lot of that that I have very little patience with uh, because I I just the world's not a safe place, you know. Right. Um. Uh. But but when it comes to you know the the kind of vulnerability we're talking about, which is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, learning coping mechanisms, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, I, I do think, I, I think, I think that's a real healthy trend in sports. I'm really, really grateful to see it. I, I all, but at the same time, back to that safe space thing, you know, like I've just finished doing this story with Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. Martina Navratilova defected from Czechoslovakia yeah. you know, um, in 1975 when she was 18 years old. She was alone in the world. She didn't see her family for five years. She struggled with English. She was learning English. She was alone learning English off I Love Lucy reruns in a hotel room all by herself. I mean, there's a strength to that. I mean, she wasn't looking for a a safe space. Okay. Right. She wasn't, she, she was just trying to be free, you know, and, 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 and play tennis and, and express her talent, you know, work on her talent. I think I'm trying to say that, that again, comfort is not the only thing worth seeking. Yeah. And I think there's a distinction between resilience with adversity around you versus just being triggered by something and being sensitive to, you know, to adversity in a negative way, you know? I mean, look, you're you're talking to a a woman who's worked in a man's world. Like if I was triggered, like I I couldn't have worked. (laughs) I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I I don't like, you know, do things tick you off? Yeah. But like, I I never believed in walking around being triggered. I I, I don't get that word. Again, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but no, um, no, you can sound insensitive. Yeah. Again, like, having just worked on this story with Everett and Navratilova, I mean, Everett was talking about having cancer. And she said, you know, you wake up in the morning with cancer and you have a choice. You can be a victim or you can try to be strong, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so, I mean, I just sort of, I love that statement. I think it's a great statement. Uh, I, I think we have a choice every day, you know? Yeah. And no matter who you are, you're going through something, you know? No one's devoid. You talked about Martina. I remember in those days, people used to call her fat and they used to make fun of her, you know, and 
coming out couldn't have been the easiest thing for her. Thought that all the pressure to win. They used to insult her by calling her a man in those days, I remember. And then Everett has the opposite thing. She was the mm-hmm. princess. She's the, you know, Miss Little you know, Privilege. Yeah. This. It's funny. They had these opposite things. One was the ugly duckling. One was the beautiful swan. And yet they both had their trappings in it. So yeah. it's interesting that they were foes and friends. Too. And, and, and Chrissy had a lot of compressed problems, right? I mean, yeah. talk about, you know, like who was going to believe Chris Everett if she said, I have a problem? Right. So what? What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. Right. You know, like who is going to believe Chrissy Everett if she said I'm really depressed or I'm, you know, uh, and I think that's one reason why they became such good friends, because, uh, you know, I think that Martina was one of the few people. Mar- one thing Martina said uh, when I was interviewing her was she said, you know, Chrissy and I are both a lot more alike than people realize. Mm-hmm. She was raised in this very sort of inhibited, compressed Catholic girl you know, have to be perfect environment. And I was raised in communism, which was equally suffocating. And she said, Mm. so we both, you know, we both kind of came out of of certain systems of tension. uh, And, and so they have sympathy for each other. That is interesting that way, you know, Chrissy had a lot more problems than people realize. She just hid them very, very well. That's the other thing in sports though. You get to have allies in these things that are important lessons too of, certain types of friendships that are just good for you to have. You know, it's the Williams sisters. They were so lucky they had each other. Serena and Venus, you know, because imagine if there was just one of them, how hard it would have been. But the fact that they had each other to to rely on was huge for them. Yeah. And their mother and their sisters. I mean, their mother's great. Their whole system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Their whole system of support. So good. You talk about, uh, you know, being in a, Man's World, of course, your dad, uh, famous sports writer, Dan Jenkins. What What are some of the lessons you learned from him or any uh, good uh, things that, uh, did, was this the reason why, was this something you thought you were going to be doing when you were sitting at his feet during all those, I don't those know that, years? I don't know that I thought I was going to be a sports writer. I think I, mm-hmm. I, I, I think for a while I thought I might be a history teacher. <laughs> yeah, I loved history. I don't know. Uh, but then... Once I went into into journalism pretty quickly, I, I settled on sports because it's what I knew best and loved best. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've done stuff outside of sports, but I, I always come running back uh, because I'm truly fascinated by it. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, my father said two or three things that really uh, stuck with me. He said, learn your craft, mm-hmm. you know, learn your craft, always stayed with me. Um, he said that... Uh, you know, never one of the last things he said to me, he said it to me many times, but he said it to me again very shortly before he died. He said, don't ever forget that there are, you know, a hundred million people who would just love to be sitting in your seat on a, on a game day. You know, wow. don't, don't ever take that for granted. You know, how lucky you are to be sitting in that seat. Um, he always impressed that on me. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, work was an ethic. You know, he said, don't ever let a thing out of your hands until it's as good as you can make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that really stayed with me. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Really good life lessons for whatever uh, you're going to do. It's um, a, appren- a very good apprenticeship. Yeah. I love that he said <laughs> sports aren't for kids. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> we were That's forbidden hilarious. to get, you know. We we were forbidden, my two brothers and I, like, we were not allowed to seek autographs. Oh, interesting. He was like, no, you don't get autographs. Like, that's not, like, he, he had this thing about autograph seekers and stuff. Like, you know, uh, he just thought that it was kind of a silly exercise and 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 that all that idolatry was was silly. Was he a sports snob? Um, he's, He was an elitist. Uh-huh. Uh, I wouldn't call him a snob. He was an elitist. He, uh... You know, he, he, he loved, I mean, another thing he said that really stuck with me was that, you know, wasting your potential is a kind of sin. Mm. And he, and he loved great athletes because they didn't commit that sin. They, they found, they just absolutely emptied themselves. You know, Mm. they explored all of their potentialities. He loved that. I mean, I can remember when, remember when Enrique Ogunbowale hit that great, those two great buzzer beaters in the NCAA tournament um, for Notre Dame. Sure. Um, and, um, I can remember him saying, he said, listen, understand this, you know, she didn't luck out on those shots. She earned them and she, she, she earned the right to make those shots. Yeah. You know, um, he loved, he loved great athletes 
ability to like find everything in themselves. Did he have a favorite athlete? Well, I mean, he was partial to some athletes as friends. He, he, he made social friends with Sonny Jurgensen and Billy Kilmer. He loved them. Uh, Redskins. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, Mm -hmm. they were, they were a lot of fun. And I think he really enjoyed, you know, having a cocktail with them. I think he, uh, he loved a golfer named David Marr. They were Dave Marr. Yeah. Dave Marr was a, became a great friend of his, Mm -hmm. uh, he loved Johnny Miller's commentary, going back to our earlier conversation. He loved, uh, I mean, he, 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 he revered Ben Hogan and knew Ben Hogan quite well. Yeah. Um, ben Hogan was almost a little bit of a, a fatherly figure to him, especially early. He was, he was very, very good, very friendly with Arnold Palmer, very fond of Arnold Palmer, very fond of Jack Nicholas. knew them very, very well, uh, mm-hmm. really liked Tom Watson. Uh, you know, he covered a lot of golf. He loved yeah. uh, an Olympic ski coach named Bob Beatty. He had mm-hmm. covered, my father had covered skiing very early for Sports Illustrated, which people forget about him. But he covered the first great American Olympic ski teams, uh, Billy Kidd and those guys. And Bob Beatty was the coach of that team. And, and Beatty remained a, a good friend of his through the years. You know, he loved Frank Gifford. You know? Yeah. Uh, Tucker Fredrickson, you know, some of the members of the New York Giants. Uh, wow. Those are the guys cool. I remember kind of being yeah. around. And what about you? Any, who are your favorite athletes? Do you have any, not necessarily that you cover, but just maybe even growing up, or are there people that stuck out to you or you admire? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually was really formed early on by the ability to cover tennis. I gravitated to tennis because it, my father mm-hmm. had never covered it, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, I wasn't maybe all that conscious of it at the time, but I gravitated to tennis because it was my own in some way. Yeah. I didn't have to go up against Dan Jenkins's body of work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I was very, very lucky generationally to be able to cover tennis when Billie Jean King was still around. Uh, but Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova were at their prime. And they were very, very kind to me. 70s and 80s, arguably the best for tennis, right? Right. I got out of college in 82. And uh, I think I wrote my first tennis story in 83. And um, and and Martina and Chrissy were, were very accommodating and kind to mm-hmm. female journalists and, uh, and, and very kind to me when I was in my 20s. And I think that watching them um, was, was pretty influential for a young writer because, uh, you know, they made it okay to like be really competitive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think falling into Pat Summit's hands, you know, as a young writer working on uh, my, my first real book was a lucky stroke as well, you know, getting mm-hmm. to hang around Pat and watched how she conducted her business. And uh, that was a big influence. So I was, I was lucky early as a writer to sort of be influenced by these greats, you know, yeah. they made as much of an impression on me as a parent in some ways. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think the first athlete that I remembering admiring, like using that word as opposed to just liking, yeah. was Arthur Ashe, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, another tennis. He, there was just something about him, his demeanor. It was almost kind of regal from my eyes, you know. He was, he, Princely. you know, yeah, you know, yeah. just in the things he had to go through to do what he did. You know, he never seemed to, he just seemed just such a great, person under all that you know and he the was. things he had to go through later in life too with the grace that he went through it with was amazing yeah. you know he wrote a column for the washington post and every year at the u.s open i would get to sit next to him as a colleague for a oh, few wow. years wow yeah that's awesome and he is he was as lovely as you describe him he was the most yeah. courtly gentle i learned a lot sitting next to him about tennis I learned a lot yeah. about a lot sitting next to him uh actually and uh he was a, he was an absolutely lovely man and I should yeah. have mentioned, yeah. Um, it's just something because I was thinking I really loved tennis growing up. I love watching it, and I remember Arthur Ashe being that figure that you know. I remember first seeing him going, "Who is this? How did he get in?" Here? Right, <laughs> thinking that he's he's awesome, you know. Uh, just having that feeling as a kid, yeah. Great. But yeah. Sally, it was so so great talking to you. Appreciate you spending. Oh, I the loved time it. Here. This is the most fun ever. This was great. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day. So I could too. Um, it's I in, de- like I said, it's definitely in my wheelhouse. You have a fan here. It's it's such an interest. The, every chapter has such interesting stories in this book, you guys. 
uh, it's especially for the summer. It's some really great stories in here. The Diane Nyad thing alone is fascinating. We talked a little bit about it, but read it in detail. What this woman had to go through to do this thing, how she kept doing it, I still can't get over. You know, is is yeah. really really good stuff. So I appreciate um, that. It was a labor of love. You know. Yeah. Best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll, we'll see it in the business, New York Times business. Yes, New York Times business bestseller. Yes, absolutely. New York Times, New, New York Times. Uh, I think the list comes out next week. So, um, hey, I love being here. This is the most interesting one of these I've ever done. This was such a great conversation. I loved it. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Sally. Sally yeah. Jenkins, you guys, the right call. What sports teach us about work and life. Go get it now. Thanks again, Sally. 